All right. So, we've got a lot to cover. You're going to be in the book of Joshua, chapter number 8. We're going to be in verses 30 through 35. Now, last week we started into this uh, message, which is a two-parter. That message last week dedicated unto God, part number one. And what we did last week was we took kind of a devotional approach to the Scripture. We kind of looked at it based upon what kind of what was the why behind what was taking place. And we saw that what Joshua had done is he had paused the Israelites. He had stopped them in their tracks before they went any further in to the land of Canaan. He did this to establish an altar that God had told them to do. Moses had directed them back when they were in the wilderness to go forth. And when they got into the land, they were established that, that altar. And what we took note is the fact that the, as he stopped them, what he was doing is refocusing them based upon really making sure that their relationship with God was right before they took even one step further. Because recognize Joshua knew there were more adversaries to come. There wouldn't just be Jericho and Ai. There were plenty of others on the horizon. And he knew that they had to have God on their side. They had to be right with him before they went forward. They needed to, in order to have victories, they had to be walking, walking with God. And recognize the fact that you and I, that is true for us. Because listen, in our spiritual promised land, as we're trying to walk with God, we're trying to walk in a surrendered, submitted, beautiful fellowship with the Lord. Guess what? There are going to be challenges. I can just tell you that right now. Has anybody else realized that in this walk with God? Hello. Part of life. But what we recognize is the fact that what they needed was a place where they could reverence God. And guess what we need? A place where we can reverence God. A place where we can center ourselves upon humility and worshiping our, our Savior, our Heavenly Father. It's so important because guess what? Before we move forward, we've got to make sure that that's where we are, that we're surrendered to Him. And we talked about last week picturing the throne room of God, imagining ourselves in the throne room of Almighty God. Imagine what that would be like. If we go through Scripture, you find everybody ever stands before God. You know what, they are, you know what position they end up on? On their face. Over and over and over again because of just the reverence that's naturally designed in humanity. When you stand before God, you have no choice. You can't stand there boldly and be like, yeah. What do you got to say, God? You're like, <laughs> I am so unworthy. So if you imagine you're in the throne room of God and you feel the love of, hey, Robin. Hey, she was in Louisiana. All of a sudden, boom, there she is. Um, but what's so cool about this, if you imagine here you are in your face and imagine the love of God in that room. Imagine what it would be like to be in the throne room of God. The humility that we would feel, the reverence that we would feel. And as we imagine that, falling down before the Lord in a place, a place of prayer and appreciation, what are we doing? We're offering ourselves a living sacrifice. That's the desire. And the reason why this is so vital is because, listen, before we move forward into our walk with God, we need to make certain that our relationship with Him is right. And can I tell you this? If you have relationships in your life that are not right, you cannot have a right relationship with God. Make things right. Live a life that's pleasing to the Lord. So we make sure that our relationship is a healthy one, grounded in love, appreciation, and, and, and prayer to our Heavenly Father. Because what we have is a current, in our current day is we have a culture that is overflowing with Christians who are much more concerned with what, God, with what people think than what God thinks. Way more concerned with what the culture thinks of them than what God thinks of them. And because of that mindset, what it does is it makes Christians live powerless lives. Lives of defeat, as Eric had mentioned before. 
Lives where they feel, you know what, man, can God do the amazing things he's done in the past? We hear stories of revival, as we've been talking about. This is something we're doing in that Bible study on the mornings. And when it's talking about revival, and what it does, it actually recounts revivals from the past. And we go, man, look what God did here, and look what God did here, and look what God did here, and look what God did here. And the problem is because we were so distracted, because we're so off focus, we think those things can't happen anymore. Well, that was for another time. That was for another day, another age. But He's the same God on the same throne with the same power. We're the same people. The problem is we're distracted. And if our hearts would get right with Him, what could He do in our lives? So am I begging for revival for this church? Absolutely. But you know what I'm begging for most importantly is for my own heart. That I would be where He wants me to be. That God could do something amazing in my life because revival start with one person who just gives in and says, God, use me. And what happens is we have a culture that's devoid of God's power because people are just too distracted. But we understand the why of why they're doing what they're doing and why it is we should do it as well. It's because there's a commandment by God, love, right? We're supposed to love God, but we're supposed to love God's word. We're supposed to love him because guess what? He first loved us. He displayed his love and has again and again and again. And it's that love that's supposed to drive us to our knees. It's that love that's supposed to put us before the Lord, giving him ourselves, giving our, our, our hearts, our lives, and saying, Lord, use me for your purpose, for what your will is. And we go, well, what's God's will? He tells us in 1 Timothy 2.4, who will have all men to be saved. This is the will of God. All men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. This is God's desire for every human being that he's ever created, that they would know that truth, that they would surrender, and then he could redeem them. That's the love that God has. That's the love that's displayed from the cross. And that's what our life is supposed to display. It's why we're still here. The t-shirt you can buy in the back, it says, it's not about me. It's all about him. When you go out of the doors today, pay attention. Since we founded this church, it says above the door, it's not about me. It's all about Him. And that's what this is. This life, man. God loves the world. All men. Not a select group. Not some that are chosen or elect, as some would like to tell you. It's for all of humanity. God redeemed the world. And He loves individually us. And devotionally, we looked at understanding this this recognition of why they were doing what they're doing. And yeah, we have that devotional understanding under our belt from last week, but listen, now we're going to dig a little bit deeper. We're going to go a little bit more into the hows, a little bit more of the details. So what we saw last week was Joshua was leading the Israelites to, first of all, be committed to honoring God. Now, they did this by pausing the military campaign, by establishing the altar, reverencing God, and doing it exactly as God had instructed them, which showed us our second point, which was that they were committed to following the words of God. Now, their faithfulness and willingness to trust and do what God said was based upon their gratitude and reverence for Him. And this motivation is what we're going to work from today. Their motivation is to be grateful and to honor God for what it is that He's done. So up to this point, what we've seen, those two points, but we're going to add two more today. That's not two, that's two, sorry. Um, They were committed to standing accountable to God. We're also going to see our fourth point, which is they're committed to receiving the Word of God. So we're going to hit those first two again, and we're going to hit those three and four as well. So this message this morning is titled, Dedicated to God, Part 2. It has a little title underneath it, which is The Valley of Decision. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for today. Uh, Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity that I have to share your Word. God, you know I do not feel worthy. Uh, Lord, I certainly don't have the skill or ability uh, to do anything special, but God, you you can do something amazing. And Lord, I'm asking you to just help me to, to surrender myself, to get out of the way, Lord, that my stumbling tongue and my idiotic mind not interfere in any way. 
Lord, I would ask that you would use me as a vessel, that you might preach your truth, uh, Lord, to your people. Lord, that our hearts would be receptive to truth. And Lord, that it would not just be something that we would learn and, and pack away, but Lord, it would be something that help us on that road to revival. And I thank you for what you'll do in Jesus' name. Amen. Joshua chapter 8, verses 30 through 35. Then Joshua built an altar unto the Lord God of Israel in Mount Ebal. As Moses the servant of the Lord commanded the children of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of whole stones over which no man hath lift up any iron. And they offered thereon burnt offerings unto the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And he wrote there upon the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he wrote in the presence of the children of Israel. And all Israel and their elders and officers and their judges stood on this side of the ark and on that side before the priests, the Levites, which bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord, as well the strangers as he was born among them, half of them over against Mount Gerizim and half of them over against Mount Ebal, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded before that they should bless the people of Israel. And afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessings and the cursings, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded, which Joshua read not before all the, children, before all the congregation of Israel, with the women and the little ones and the strangers that were conversant among them. And last week in our discussion about the motivation, like one of the things that we didn't touch on is the precedence of establishing altars. And what happens the very first time we show it, we see it show up, is when Noah, after the flood, it's going to be in Joshua, and actually in Genesis 8, verse 8, 20, and he establishes an altar the very first time this is done. Then after that, we see Abram is going to establish an altar. Then we see Jacob, Moses, Gideon, Samuel, Elijah, David, and it keeps going on and on and on. They're establishing altars in reverence to God. And in doing so, what they're doing is they're directing their hearts upon honoring Him earnestly trusting the Lord, putting their faith in Him. And what's happened is the Israelites, after having these two victories, now they're going, okay, let's make sure that everything is where it needs to be. And what we'll notice here is in that first point, committed on, to commit, that they are committed to honoring God, that they're doing exactly what God told them to do. Okay? They're doing exactly as He told them to do it. Deuteronomy 27 forces this. Therefore it shall be when ye be gone over Jordan that ye shall set up these stones which I command you this day. In Mount Ebal, and thou shalt plaster them with plaster. Verse 30, this is where he actually does it. Then Joshua built an altar unto the Lord God of Israel in Mount Ebal. Take note that it doesn't say upon Mount Ebal. It says in Mount Ebal. What it's referencing is the mountain range of Ebal. It's not on the mountain itself. You'll notice that the Israelites, when we get to them, they'll be upon the mountain. But it's to be in the mountain. What's addressed, what's interesting here about this mountain where Joshua's to build this altar is the fact that if we go back in time and we look at where Abram established his altar, which is kind of cool. 685 years earlier, Abram's first altar just happens to be built in the same mountain range. We have a picture of it. I have a map here that kind of gives us an indicator of where it's at. So we can see here, here's, here's Mount Gerizim, here's Mount Ebal, and right here, Shechem is basically, that's where that's where uh, Abram is going to establish his altar. So it's kind of cool that they're kind of built in the same area. So the second altar, right? This one, dedicated unto God. The first one that Abram built was in dedication to the fact that God had delivered the promised land, which is exactly what's being done with this altar as well. They're doing it in dedication of God establishing the promised land. This place, this promised land is a place where God is supposed to receive glory. Abram was doing that. Now Joshua's doing the same thing. 
It's not for the godless. It's not for the unholy. It's for God's people to get right with him and honor him. This is a place where the Lord would receive glory. And you know what? In our spiritual promised land, that's what it's for. It's not about how we feel. It's not about, you know, man, I walk with God in fellowship because it makes me feel good. I love how it makes me feel because of our selfish nature. We believe that God exists to serve us, and we would never admit that. But ultimately, it's kind of the way we think. We go to the Bible because I want to learn how I can feel better about what I'm going through. It's how it impacts me. I'm going through a hard time. Well, God, how can I feel better? Not God, what are you teaching me through this so that you can use this life of mine for your glory? And it's this orientation that's so selfishly designed that draws us away from God and we think we're seeking Him. And it's a subtlety that Satan works. So understanding the fact that this life, again, is about God receiving glory. We're in the promised land for Him, not for us. It's not for the, for the, for the milk and the honey. It's for the glory of God. That's what he's directing them to. And we see that they follow very specifically the instructions that God has given them. We look at our second point, which is the fact that they're committed to following the words of God. Deuteronomy, here are the instructions. Deuteronomy 27, verses 5 through 9. And there shalt thou build an altar unto the Lord thy God, an altar of stones. Thou shalt not lift up any iron upon them. Thou shalt build the altar of the Lord thy God of whole stones. And thou shalt offer up burnt offerings thereon unto the Lord thy God. And thou shalt offer peace offerings and shalt eat there and rejoice before the Lord thy God. There'll be a celebration. And thou shalt write upon the stones all the words of this law very plainly. And we can see that that is precisely what Joshua is doing. Listen to what he does. Verses 31 and 32. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded the children of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, and they offered thereon burnt offerings, exactly as there too, unto the Lord, and sacrificed peace offerings. And he wrote there upon the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he wrote in the presence of the children of Israel. So they're getting all their details of exactly what they're doing from God himself. So God's word is where they get all of their direction. Every step they're taking is guided by God's word. What an awesome example to you and I. What if every step we took was guided by God's word? Not by our culture. Not by our desire. Not by anything, not anyone or anything, but only God alone. If that were the case, guess what? There would be revival at Hope Baptist Church. (laughs) There would be revival here. We would be amazed at what God was doing right before our eyes. But because we become callous to God's word, and we don't listen to it like we think we do, right? The Bible talks about deceiving our own selves. He warns about being not just a hearer of the word, but a doer. And it's very easy to receive something. As Scripture talks about, as you'll see an instance where I think John, uh, it, God tells him to eat a little book. And he eats this little book in the book of Revelations. And when he eats it, he says, mmm, sweet, like honey. Tastes good when you eat it. But then it's bitter in my belly. Whoa, made me feel kind of sick. You know what it's telling you? Many times when you receive the Word of God, oh, yeah. Mmm, mm, yeah, baby. Mmm, love it, love it. Application, golly, dude, that's, because forgiveness sounds good. I mean, dude, that just rolls off the tongue. Be forgiven, oh man, yeah, that's us. We're Christians, we forgive. And then somebody really wrongs you. 
guess what? It gets a little bitter. It gets really, really hard. It's not always easy. And it's not supposed to be. Because remember, we're supposed to do deny ourselves. Take up our cross and follow Him. What Christ did was not easy. He suffered for the sake of us. Not because He deserved it, but because He loved us. And so we see that they're fabricating this altar exactly as God told them. Notice what it says. Joshua's going to tell them about the actual materials that are to be used. Verse 31, an altar of whole stones over which no man hath lift up any iron. So God's very specific. He says specifically what material it's to be made out of. And he also tells us that these materials are not supposed to be cut. This rock is not supposed to be in any way changed or shaped. It's a natural stone that's to be gathered to fabricate the altar. Now, God stipulates that very specifically. Why would God be so particular about the fact that it's supposed to be whole stones? Is it possible that God is picturing something for us? What do y'all think? I think there's a chance, right? Now, do I have all the answers? No, I do not. I'm going to take my best stab at what I think it is, and I could be completely wrong, and if I'm wrong after church and you have the answer, you come and tell me. I would love to hear what the real answer is. But this is my guess, okay? So we consider whole stones. Now, let's consider where a stone comes from. Stone comes from the, from the earth. Guess where we come from? We come from the earth. The Bible talks about the dust. Genesis 2, 7 says this, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Genesis 3.19 says this, In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. Now if we take a stone and we were to pulverize it, what do we end up with? Dust. It goes back to its origin. Guess what? You and I, that's our origin. We have the same origin. It's from the planet. So here we are with the same origin. We're both from dust. But then we also see in Scripture that God actually references human beings as stones. He talks about us and calls us stones. 1 Peter 2, verses 4 and 5. To whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious, ye also, talking about humanity, as lively stones, living stones, God's giving a visual, are built up a spiritual house. So you're supposed to come up with a fabricate something out of stones that are people. And what is it for? And holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices. A place that's to be built of stones that is to be a place of sacrifice acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. And so God compares us to living stones. Now recognize this. We're supposed to be busy, according to that scripture in 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5, making sacrifices unto God. Notice this, verse 31. And they offered thereon burnt offerings unto the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. Burnt offerings and peace offerings. Okay, what's the difference? What's interesting is a burnt offering, guess what you do with it? Man, you guys are awesome. You burn it, right? So it's to be burned. It's to be returned back to once it's came. You bring that thing, and when it's completely burned, it's returned back to the elements. It's solely for, for God. We saw Elijah, right, when he faced off against the prophets of Baal on the Mount Carmel, and he called down fire from heaven. What happened? 1 Kings 18, verses 36 through 38. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel, and that I am thy servant, and that I have done all these things at thy word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me. 
that this people may know that Thou art the Lord God, and that Thou hast turned their heart back again. Verse 38, Then the fire of the Lord fell down and consumed the burnt sacrifice, and the wood and the stones and the dust licked up the water that was in the trench. A burnt offering is completely consumed by fire, returning it back to its creator. But that's not the only kind of sacrifice. Next it says, peace offerings. Deuteronomy 27.7 tells this, And thou shalt offer peace offerings there, and, shalt, and it says, And shalt eat there, notice that, they shall eat there, and rejoice before the Lord God of Israel. You're supposed to have a celebration before God. So notice this, peace offerings. There's a, God goes through and defines for us what a peace offering is to be in Leviticus 7, verses 11 through 15. He says this, And this is the law of the sacrifice of peace offerings. Here's how it goes. Which he shall offer unto the Lord. Notice this, there's a qualifier. If he offer it for a thanksgiving, then he shall offer it with a sacrifice of thanksgiving, unleavened cakes mingled with oil, some side dishes, unleavened wafers anointed with oil, cakes mingled with oil, a fine flour, fried. Look, I got fry bread. It's rocking, man. Besides the cakes, he shall offer for his offering leavened bread with the sacrifice of thanksgivings of his peace offerings. And of it he shall offer out of the whole oblation for an heave offering unto the Lord. So part of that offering is going to be given to God, and it shall be the priest that sprinkleth the blood of the peace offerings. And the flesh of the sacrifice of, this, of his peace offering for thanksgiving shall be eaten the same day that it is offered. He shall not leave any of it until the morning. So they're supposed to have a meal where they're literally sitting down and eating with God. God consumes his through fire and they consume theirs by eating it. It is a joint celebration of thanksgiving. And so here, that's what's going on on Mount Ebal. This altar made of whole stones where sacrifices are to be made. Listen, but there's another detail. God said this. He said the law of God would be written on the stones. Deuteronomy 27, 8. And thou shalt write upon the stones all the words of this law very plainly. Verse 32 tells us that's what he does. And he wrote there upon the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he wrote in the presence of the children of Israel. So he writes, right, on the stones. Remember, they plastered him with plaster. And he's writing in the plaster. So these natural, uncut stones that are assembled for a place of sacrifice are to have the law of God written on them. Now, is it possible... That this altar that God has established for these Israelites to, to, to center them and get them focused for where they are to, to go is also at the same time picturing something for us. Maybe that these uncut stones, right? These natural stones. Think about it. The natural man, right? What does the natural man have? This natural man, the natural form pictured here. But recognize it's not just for the Israelites, okay? This is the unique thing. Verses 33 and 35 tells us that there are strangers with them. Notice this. So this is not just for the Jew. It is for the other, the non-Jew. We see strangers among them. We see Jew and non-Jew. We see those people like Rahab that were picked up along the way, those that left Egypt and came out with them. Notice here, listen, establishing the fact that this is for both of them. They're all there in this presence. It's not just for God's children. It's for the people of the world. Is it possible that God is picturing for us that all of humanity, all of humanity, listen, has been given the opportunity to give glory to God? And can I tell you, we all have. Jew, Gentile, no matter who we are. Because understand this, whether people want to admit it or not, 
They know the law. They know the law. Natural stones know the law. You know how they know it? Because the Bible tells us, Romans 2, verses 14 and 15. For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature their natural form, the things contained in the law, these having not the law, are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts. Written in their hearts. He says, you know what? The uncut stones on this planet, guess what? Even they have the law written on them. Notice what he says. There, and he says, their conscience also bearing witness and their thoughts, the mean while ex- accusing or else excusing one another. You know what he says? Lost people hold each other accountable by a moral law that's written on their hearts. They don't know God, but in their heart they know what's right and wrong. Yeah, they know. Listen, the law of God, it's morality. It's not a construct of God. I mean, it's not a construct of the world. It comes from the Lord. God created us, and He wrote it inside of who we are. You don't have to take a copy of the Ten Commandments to the far corners of the world to see it lived out. Because I'm just telling you, if we go to some island where they've never seen anything, and then one of those islanders goes, and he gets himself a log that's really sweet, and he gets out his little knife and his tools, and he works on that thing, and he makes himself a sweet raft. I mean, just the toughest, the the baddest one on the whole island. Got some stripes on it. He gets finished polishes it up, prepped to go out fishing in that bad boy, and he slides it over by his tent. And we show up. And I go, man, sweet boat. I'm taking that home. Dun, dun, dun. So you're going to go, well, i got to start on a new boat. <laughs> no. Dude, that mug's going to chase us down and beat us down for that boat. I can promise you. He knows you ain't supposed to take his stuff. You know why? Because it's written on his heart. He doesn't know God's word. Sorry if I used beat down in church. I apologize that. <laughs> but that's what's going to happen. Recognize, this is a truth, man. You know why? Because it's written in their heart, and it's written in our heart. I, and, and there's a verse that, that's put, God's put on my heart that uh, I'm going to add. It's not, not going to be on your notes. They're going to be online. But 2 Corinthians 3, 3. For as much... As you manifestly declared to be the epistles of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, listen, but with the spirit of the living God. Not in tables of stone, but in fleshly tables of the heart. Amen. Written on our hearts. Is it possible that this Israelite altar of sacrifice in their promised land made of uncut stones with the law of God written on them pictures a spiritual place where any and all can come to God. Or listen, in celebration of the victory that he delivered from the cross, is it possible that's what it's picturing to us? Maybe. Then again, maybe not. Maybe God's just being creative and he likes rock. What if it's this? What if, it's, what if he says, you know what? The way I deliver your word to me, or, or my word to you, I don't want it to ever be adulterated or changed or cut or altered. Leave it just as it is. Right. Either way, you know what we do know this? This altar symbolizes a place to honor God. And as we stated last week, listen, every person who's ever lived has been given that chance. But sadly, most will not because of our selfish nature. Yeah. Yeah. 
we're so consumed with us. We're much more concerned with honoring ourselves than we are with honoring, honoring God. But there is a, there is a minority that do want to honor God. There's a minority out there that truly want to honor the Lord and live for Him and, 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 and to live a life that proclaims His glory to the world. And my heart's desire is they would be in, these, be in this room today. And it's modeled for us in this group of Israelites. We've seen them committed to honoring God, committed to following the words of God. Next, we see they're committed to standing accountable to God. Notice verse number 33. And all Israel and their elders and officers and their judges stood on this side of the ark and on that side before the priests of the Levites, which bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord, as well the strangers as he that was born among them, half of them over against Mount Gerizim and half of them over against Mount Ebal, as Moses the servant of the Lord had commanded before that they should bless the people of Israel. So now after the sacrifices have been done, after God's been honored, we see the 12 tribes are to go to the two locations that God established for them, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. Verse 33 says, And all Israel and their elders and officers and their judges stood on this side of the ark and on that side before the priests, the Levites, which bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord. And what's interesting, Deuteronomy 27 tells us how they're to be divided. It tells us specifically how they're divided. This 12 tribes, how are they broken up in verses 12 and 13? These shall stand upon Mount Gerizim to bless the people. When ye are come over Jordan, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. And these shall stand upon Mount Ebal to curse. Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. So six tribes on one mountain, six on the other. But did you notice where the ark was? He told us. And all Israel and the elders and officers and their judges stood on this side the ark and on that side before the priests, the Levites, which bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord. That tells us the ark's in the middle. The ark's in the valley. They're here. The ark's here in the same place where Abram's altar was, interestingly enough. And we know the ark is a graphic representation of the Lord Jesus Christ. It pictures Him. It has the mercy seat of God in the lid that sits upon it. Notice the mercy seat. That's where God would come down to earth and meet with humanity. It's the most holy object that's ever been created. And you know what's inside of it? The Ten Commandments written with the finger of God. How amazing. And so this is where Joshua's going to address the people from. This is where he's going to share the truth. And you know what's interesting as a side note? If you go to Palestine today, and you go to where those two mountains are, and you stand in that valley, it's said that you can speak in a normal voice, and it works like an amphitheater, and you can hear your voice spoken on either of those mountains. How cool is that? Just a little detail. It's kind of cool where God verifies. Let me just show you geog- geographically. Is that what you would say? Geolo- geologically, I guess that's... Um, I don't know. I'm not going to use words I don't know because there's a lot of words I don't know. David can give, he can give, you all, <laughs> he'll give you all the details on that kind of stuff. But listen, the point is this. It's just it's amazing how God's going to work through this. But then there was another group that was there, right? There was the travelers that were with them. So we know where, we know where Joshua is. We know where the, the ark is. We know where the two groups are. But where about the strangers? Where are they? Verse 33 says this. As well the strangers as he that was born among them, half of them over, notice this, over against Mount Ebal. Notice that the tribes were upon Mount Ebal. They're over against Mount Gerizim and half of them over against Mount Ebal. Against means near. 
They're, at the, they're gathered at the base of it. As Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded before that they should bless the children of Israel. So they're not on the mountains. They're against the mountains, standing there in front of it. And so the scene is set. We have six tribes on this side, six tribes on this side. We have the, the people gathered in front of the mountains. We have the ark in the center, in the valley between them, as Joshua is going to lead them. And what we're going to see is the fact that they're going to be willing and, and ready to receive the word of God. They're committed to receiving God's word, verses 34 and 35. And afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessings and cursings. According to that, all that is written in the book of the law, there was not a word of all that Moses had commanded that Joshua read not before all the congregation of Israel with the women and the little ones and the strangers that were conversing among them. Now, if you want to read all those blessings and curses, go to Deuteronomy 27 and 28. It's, boy, it's painstakingly laid out for you. I recommend that you read it. Go all the way up to, actually go up all the way up to chapter number 30. But what you'll hear as you read it is how seriously God takes obedience to his word. He ain't messing around. There's a whole lot more cursings than there are blessings, just to give you a little heads up on that one. But I recommend that you go read them. Because recognize God is serious about these things. Why does he tell us this? Not because he wants to order us around. Not because he wants to control us. No. God establishes parameters. Like we talked about last week. Why did our mom warn us not to go in the road? Not because they don't want us to have fun on our scooter. They want to keep us from getting run over by a dump truck. Right? They give us parameters to establish the path that we should go. And see, the Israelites will have to choose what path they're going to take as they go forward. They've got to choose. The law of God directs us to godliness. It directs us to godliness. It literally warns us of the dangers of ungodliness over and over and over again. And why is he reading it to everybody? Because guess what? They're all accountable, Jew and non-Jew. No matter who you are, no matter what you believe, guess what? You're still accountable to God. You can claim that he's not real. You can deny him all day long, and it will not make a difference. When you stand before him, you're going to go, man, was I wrong. Dang, that was a bad call. Jeez, Louise, you are, yeah, this is not good. That's going to be the reality for a lot of people. Deny him to the end, but it will not change the reality that you'll stand before him. It is written on our hearts. And so Joshua reads the law of God to the people. And they will have to choose what they will do with what they hear. Will they choose blessing or cursing? Blessing or cursing? After Moses delivers that law to them, what we find is the fact that when they're still in the wilderness, when we get to Deuteronomy chapter 30, I want you to listen to, to what he says to the people, verses 15 through 19. Chapter 30 is awesome all the way through. You'll love it. But 15 through 19, I just took an excerpt from it. He says, See, I have set before thee this day life and good and death and evil. Two choices. In that I command thee this day to love the Lord thy God, to walk in his ways, to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, that thou mayest live and multiply in the Lord. Thy God shall bless thee in the land whither thou goest to possess it. Man. Do right. Get God's blessing. Walk with Him in fellowship. Verse 17. But if thine heart turn away, so that thou wilt not hear, but shall be drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I denounce, you, I, don't deny, I denounce unto you this day that ye shall surely perish and that ye shall not prolong your days upon the land, whither thou passest over Jordan to go to possess it. Listen, number, verse 19. Listen to the heart of God. I call heaven and earth to record this day against you, 
that I have set before you. Listen, I've given you choices, life and death, blessings and cursings. Therefore, choose life. Therefore, choose life. And both thou and thy seed may live. That's the heart of God. What's He saying? Please, please, please choose life. Choose godliness. Choose love for me. Don't turn to your flesh. Surrender your life. Live in harmony with me. Let me use your life for my glory. That's what He's begging us. We hear His heart right there. And He's certainly addressing these people in this story, no doubt about it. But guess what? He's also addressing us. It comes down to choices. I'm waiting to hear. This is uh, from the prophet Joel, chapter number 3. And this, if you know the Bible and you understand how prophecy works, Joel is a little tough to read. It's hard because it's about God's judgment. It's powerful. But we get Joel 3, verses 11 through 14. As God brings judgment upon the wicked, I want you to hear this. 11 through 14. Assemble yourselves and come, all ye heathen, and gather yourselves together round about. Thither cause thy mighty ones to come down, O Lord. Let the heathen be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there will I sit and judge, and sit and judge all the heathen round about. Put ye in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, get you down, for the press is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord, and we know what that is. That's the second coming of Christ. The day of the Lord, it's an icon in Scripture. Every time you see it, he's saying, this is the return of the king. The day of the Lord is near in the valley of decisions. we got to choose. And listen, you might be in your own valley of decision today. I don't know where you are. I don't know your heart. Only you and God do. If you're trying to come to grips with what it is you should choose, blessings or cursings. And people go, well, that's ridiculous. Who would choose cursings? Who would say, well, I'll take cursings, thanks. We think that's crazy. But guess what? Every single day, people choose cursings. They choose their flesh. They follow their emotions and their desires. They go, no, no, no. I'll take cursings. They do it every day. We do it every day. Decisions. Listen, this valley in Canaan is picturing for us that there's choices to be made. Blessings or cursings, which would we choose? Look, we can choose to live a life that's filled with sacrifice of self and, and, and living for the desire and the glory of God. And we can live a life that dedicates, that's dedicated to God. We have that choice. But we can also live a life that is selfish. Turn our back on our loving Lord. And choose what we want over what He wants. And dedicate our lives to ourselves. One's blessings, the other one's cursings. It's promised in Scripture. Galatians 6, 8. Listen. 
For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, cursings. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life. What did he say? Choose life. I beg you, choose life, everlasting blessings. And I'll leave you with the words of Joshua at the end of his life. Joshua 24, 15. And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom ye will serve. Whether the gods of the gods of your fathers that were on the other side of the flood, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We know the choice that Joshua made. He stood for God to the end of his life. He chose blessings. See, the question for us is, from this day forward, which one do we choose? Blessings or cursings? I can tell you which one God wants us to take. His heart burns for us to choose life. But our world is marked by death. It's all around us. Don't fall prey to what the world tells you is the answer. Choose life. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you, God, for the the simple message delivered. God, which is this. It's about choices. Blessings or cursings. Which will we choose? With our heads bowed or with our eyes closed. Look, if you're here today and you're struggling with internal decisions, you've got a sin in your life that you're trying to deal with and reconcile, can I just beg you to choose life? (laughs) Just surrender it to Him. If it's anger, bitterness, unforgiveness, covetousness, whatever it is, if there's someone that's hurt you desperately and you just can't let it go, the Bible says for him to do, for a man that knoweth to do right and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Let it go. Let God heal your broken heart. Let him restore you into that right relationship with him. Choose life. And if you're here today, you're watching this online and you say, look, I don't know where I stand with God. Can I promise you that he loves you more than you can possibly imagine? And in your broken condition, Right now where you feel desperate and despondent, can I tell you that he is calling out to you and that he loves you desperately? All you have to do is respond. The Bible says, For the heart man believeth unto righteousness, but the mouth confession is made into salvation. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Listen, you might be religious. You might know all about the Bible, but you can know all about God and still not know him. You can still be lost. Religion will not save you. Past experiences of what you think to be godly will not save you. For by grace you are saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works. No religious work. It's just surrendering to a loving God. And if he's drawing your heart today, all you have to do is respond.
receive the gift that is freely given from the cross by faith. So their heads bowed and eyes closed. If you want to receive Christ, I'm going to give you that opportunity to receive him. It doesn't take anything. There's no special prayer. There's no ceremony. It's just a willing heart, willing to receive. If you want to receive him, repeat after me in your heart and mind. Lord, I, I know that I'm a sinner. And I am sorry for my sin. I understand that I'm accountable to you. And right now I'm scared. But in the same moment, I understand that you love me. I may not feel deserving, but yet you love me. And you died on the cross to pay the debt for my sin. I'm asking you right now, by faith, in the best way I know how, I'm asking you to come into my heart to forgive me of my sins and give me a home in heaven. Lord, thank you for loving me. Thank you for keeping your word and saving my soul. Thank you, Lord, that I one day walk with you in eternity. Lord, thank you for saving me. I'll see you in heaven one day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.